0: H.P. September 11th, still lying to amid enormous ice fields. The one which stretches away to the north of us, and to which our ice anchor is attached, cannot be smaller than an English county. To the right and left, unbroken sheets extend to the horizon. This morning, the mate reported that there were signs of pack ice to the southward, Should this form of sufficient thickness to bar our return, we shall be in a position of danger, as the food, I hear, is already running somewhat short. It is late in the season, and the nights are beginning to reappear.
1: that is the opening of sir arthur conan doyle's the captain of the pole star we're talking about this story because art doyle and his story here was well loved by hp lovecraft and this is of course the hp lovecraft literary podcast
2: we are here at hppodcraft.com i'm chad pfeiffer
1: And I'm Chris Lackey. Welcome to 2016.
2: Welcome. Glad to be back. I hope folks enjoyed the quiz show we released for New Year's Eve. We've actually got a supersized Chicago live show that we haven't released publicly yet. Woo! Yeah. That one we're not splitting up. So it's got some stand up at the beginning. It's got a show with us covering a couple of Robert Block stories. And then there's a quiz show at the end of that. So yep. the whole thing runs almost two hours. Eh, we'll release that soonish. I don't know when yep. you want to do that. I a month want two. to.
1: In a bit, because the last show that we put up kind of jagged our bandwidth. So we're going to give this thing some space because it is one heck of a file.
2: Uh, who was that reader we heard at the top?
1: Oh, that amazing voice belongs to none other than the amazing John Hancock. Aha. Uh-huh. I'm so glad to have him back and having him make sweet love to this text.
2: Yes. Speaking of sweet love, I hate being obvious in my literary analysis, but... Captain of
1: the Polestar sure sounds like a porno. (laughs) I honestly didn't think of that.
2: You didn't? Notice, I'm not saying it sounds like porn. It sounds like a porno. People don't say porno anymore. They just say porn. Porno is when they used to have the big expensive productions and the titles like Captain of the Polestar. (laughs) You're not going to see that online.
1: What is this designation that you've found or created? I just
2: created it just now. Okay, it's classier if it's porno,
1: but if it's like one of these things that somebody just shoots on their phone,
2: yeah, that's porn. It's
1: porn. It's porn. That's porn. But if it's a full-on movie shot on film stock,
2: look, if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is involved, that is
1: porno. I wonder how many Sherlock Holmes pornographic films there are.
2: I wonder too. It's not exactly the sexiest subject matter.
1: No, but I, but let's you know what I'm going to just go ahead and and see if I can do a quick all right oh there are some sherlock i don't want to actually watch them (laughs) sherlock holmes sherlock
2: holmes okay
1: sherlock homie how's
2: that how does that make it porno i'm
1: not clicking on these because i don't actually i'm not i don't really need to see them sherlock holmes and the missing porn star
2: i think that's one of the original novels actually is it i and j colbart's done an excellent treatment of that one (laughs) Well, I don't know much about this story other than in supernatural horror and literature. uh, Lovecraft says Doyle now and then struck a powerfully spectral note as in the captain of the pole star, Mm -hmm. a tale of Arctic ghostliness. So we know it's Arctic and it's ghostly. I figured, hey, it's January. It's winter. We haven't really charted, a course, for the new year yet ourselves for the show. So how about a ship stuck in some ice? Seems appropriate. That
1: sounds good. Uh, The story is the journal of John McAllister Ray. He is a ship's medic on a whaling ship called the Polestar. The ship is in the northern part of the Greenland Sea, very far north. And it's getting to be close to the end of the year. It's September, as you heard at the top. Mm -hmm. And the nights are starting to show up again because when you're that far north in the summertime... There is no nighttime right. because the earth is tilted far enough. So it's getting colder and the water starting to freeze and they're worrying about the boat getting stuck.
2: There are giant sheets of ice in all directions except the way home south, but it looks like that's not going to last because there are signs of pack ice in that direction, as we heard in the opening. In previous episodes, it's weird. I talked about Shackleton's expedition into the Antarctic, but that's what with he and his crew, the disaster struck. This was around 1914, 1915, when they, he led an expedition across the Antarctic in his ship, the Endurance... Mm-hmm was trapped in pack ice and it was slowly crushed whoa the ice came in and eventually crushed the ship so they didn't have time wow. to even get all of their stuff off they just had to scram and then they were stuck marooned on the ice so for these guys you know this story get published i believe in 1890 mm-hmm. this uh, story we're covering right now these guys on the pole star they're not just in danger of not getting home i mean they could be stuck out here if this pack ice gets too bad their whole ship could be crushed a precarious situation
1: and the whaling job is taking longer than the crew would like Mm -hmm. they want to get back to scotland before the herring season which makes them a lot of money and the captain this guy craigie is a bit of a hot head you know he's got a a temper on him and the crew doesn't really want to talk to him about it so john our narrator uh, gets on with him very well and he thinks okay you know i'll go have a talk with him kind of casually over a meal
2: john's the ship's doctor Apparently gets along well with the with the captain and the captain has more of a shine to him than he does to the other uh, crew members.
1: So the next entry is after he's talked to the captain and it goes well at first and the captain listens and he doesn't flip out. The captain starts kind of talking a little strange. He goes, oh, you know, I apologize for taking you out in this dangerous job. And, you know, these other guys, they're, they're sailors. So they don't know what they're doing, but you're a doctor and you shouldn't be here.
2: He's kind of mean about it. He says, I wish I had old Angus Tate who was with me last voyage for he was a man that would never be missed. You said once you were engaged, did you not? So what's up with the drive-by on Angus Tate? He's not even there to defend himself. I was thinking like, yeah, you guys are stuck out on the ice. Angus is probably by a fire somewhere, eating some popcorn, farting. He's not in the predicament that you're in. He's watching Sherlock, homie. He's fine. He doesn't need your approval.
1: Well, when John, the doctor, says, you know, I hey, I'm... I am engaged. And here, take a look. And he shows this little locket that he has, which is a picture of her. His lady, Flora is her name, in this locket. Flora. And then once he sees that picture, the captain flips out and he goes, curse you. What is your happiness to me? What have I to do with her that you must dangle her photograph before my eyes? And he just storms out after that.
2: Has it ever happened to you before?
1: Have I ever been a captain on a <laughs> whaling vessel?
2: <laughs> no. Have you ever shown a locket of your girlfriend to a captain and have him flip out on you?
1: Not the captain. No but the first mate the first
2: that's with the first mate
1: yeah that's happened to me before i see yeah
2: well it's common experience
1: no that has never happened to me in any way
2: john says i'm gonna lay out what i say what i think is like a psychological study of this captain because he's a real strange guy so i'm kind of studying him, trying to figure out what his deal is he goes on to describe him a bit
1: he says that the captain is agreeable man he's kind of big and tough and got chisel good looks he's very affable and even hilarious at times he uses the word hilarious yeah but sometimes he gets these really dark angry moods he also knows that he's going to go into these moods because he's able to like cut himself off from everybody so he'll go into his cabin for like an hour and you know just kind of yell and be angry and, right. stuff, and then come out and be cool
2: and the frightening thing about the captain the narrator lays it out in it with a little anecdote he says around april they were caught in a gale it was a really bad storm and in that moment, he had never seen the captain happier. The captain was pacing around the decks and the thunder and the lightning and the wind. And actually, at some point, the captain has said the thought of death is pleasant to him, Just not something you want to hear from the guy that's leading you out into the Arctic. No. Also, he's a little old before his time. He's around 30, but he looks pretty banged up. It says his hair and mustache are already slightly grizzled.
1: What does that mean?
2: I was trying to imagine a slight You know, Did he go to the barber? Put a slight grizzle on that mustache. But he's just looking a little old before his time, I guess.
1: The next day he had breakfast with the captain and he apologized to the narrator. The crew is a superstitious lot and they say that the captain has a touch of the fay,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which means, you know, he's part fairy or he's got fairy blood in him or something like that. Right. They say the wild look in his eyes, which in a Highlander would mean he was fay kind of off or other in some way. He's a fairy ferryman. Except the crewmen were talking about hearing some plaintive cries in the wake of the ship. Uh, the sounds were getting closer as the night drew on. And of course, John thinks this is uh, just probably some seabird or the rudder chains but nothing unnatural.
2: Right. And he's really annoyed at how superstitious the crew is. Typically, skeptical doctor. And he's even been giving them some sedatives with their Saturday grog because they're getting so worked <laughs> up about this sound. So he's drugging them up a little bit. He's so annoyed by them. He just can't believe the stuff that they talk about. But when he uh, hears about these particular unnatural moanings that are coming from behind the ship, he goes and he tells the captain.
1: Yeah, and the captain... He thinks the captain would be on his side because he's a really rational guy. But when he does tell him, it upsets him a bit. Mm -hmm. It seems like that he believes in the supernatural, but he doesn't really say much about it. He just kind of looks a little concerned and and then wanders off. Yeah. The second mate, this guy, Mr. Manson, says he saw a ghost last night. Both him and the harpoon guy heard the strange noise off of the boat. They check on the ice field that they are anchored to. Mm -hmm. They see this white Figure in the distance. He thinks it's a bear, so he gets a gun and he and the harpooner get on the float to go after it. As they're running around, he loses sight of the harpooner.
2: But he keeps moving towards
1: this ghost. He wants to know what it is, but when he finally sees it, it is tall and white and straight. And if it wasn't a man or a woman, He'd stake his Davy, it was something worse.
2: The description's pretty, it doesn't really give you too much detail. So I thought it was sort of creepy what he's talking about. Yeah. Some thing out there on the ice. I mean, how could it? They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the nearest civilization, right? So, like, how could something be out there that wasn't an animal?
1: Of course, our narrator thinks it was just an animal and that he was mistaken or just tired or it was dark. And this absurd outbreak of superstition, as he calls it, Mm -hmm. uh, has kind of gotten everybody some little bit of brain fever. Right. So once a ghost story comes out, you know, somebody says, I saw a ghost. That gets everybody's stander up. Mm-hmm. And even the old harpooners who have seen it all and are usually pretty reasonable, those guys are even going, oh, we're in trouble. There's a ghost about.
2: That's why I trust old harpooner savings and loan with all my insurance needs. <laughs> old harpooner, don't you wish your bank thought ghosts were bullshit?
1: <laughs> Man, I think you got a new business idea. I know. (laughs) So the next day, John talks to the chief mate, uh, Milne, who tells him about the captain, gives him a little dirt on him. And he's just kind of a strange guy. After the job, you know, after the ship docks, they go back to Dundee. He just disappears until the next season. He has no friends there. Right. Nobody really knows his story. And they're pretty sure he's not even Scottish. One season, he didn't show up. And then he does return the following season. And he's got this neck wound. Everybody started kind of talking about it's like, what did he get this neck wound? And they go, wait a minute, this, when he was gone, that coincided with the Russian-Turkish war. So did he fight for one of those guys?
2: Right. It looks like he has. It, It just reaffirms this idea that he has a death wish, which is why he'd go off and fight a war. Although it says, when he turned up again next spring, he had a puckered wound in the side of his neck, which he used to endeavor to conceal with his cravat. You know, another possible theory is that he took a year off and then came back with the cravat just hoping that could be like his new thing like he'd wear a cravat all the time <laughs> and maybe if he took a year off people would kind of forget what he looks like and they would just kind of take it for granted when he showed up again and go oh yeah cap noise wears a cravat
1: you think it was a fashion statement
2: i do yeah i think he wanted to go with a new cravat look he put the wound in there on purpose so that if people were like that cravat's stupid he'd be like hey i'm just trying to cover up this wound ah, don't be rude that was his backup
1: so he's kind of hedging his bets a bit that's right with the fake neck wound that's right (laughs) so at this point there is a small way to get out of the ice to the south but the captain he wants to stay on he wants to get the big haul the big whale haul because it's a whaling ship Mm -hmm. and everyone's starting to worry the food stores are getting low and if they stay too long they might get stuck in the ice and they get stuck in the ice they're
2: toast And the captain's saying he's seeing all these whales out in the distance, but is he? It's hard to tell. The next entry is at 7.30 p.m. The narrator pretty much has made up his mind about the captain. It reads, my deliberate opinion is that we are commanded by a madman. Yeah.
1: That evening, John was standing on the deck and he's looking out over the ice and the captain saddles up to him with this crazy look. He says, he was staring out over the ice with an expression of which horror, surprise, and something approaching to joy were contending for mastery. It's pretty good. I thought that was good. Yeah. This look on his face. And he gets all twitchy. He says to the narrator, he goes, look, there, man, there, between the hummocks, now coming out from behind the far one, you see her, you must see her, there, still, flying from me, by God, flying from me, and gone. He uttered the last two words in a whisper of concentrated agony, which shall never fade from my remembrance. Can you do it? Can I hear that? Okay, let me see. Let me see. There, still, flying from me, by God, flying from me. (laughs) Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) I thought you were going to do more of a gravelly thing, but you you came in with a Roddy McDowell at the end.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I went Roddy McDowell with that. That was pretty sweet, dude.
2: Thank you. I definitely felt the concentrated
1: agony. Yeah, it was there.
2: Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love your work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The captain climbs up to the ropes to try and see more of whatever it is that he saw. And then he climbs down and asks John, you know, you saw it, right? You saw it. And of course, John was like, no, I don't
2: know what you're Yeah, about mm-hmm. he says, "Why don't you come down to my quarter and we'll have some brandy?" So he takes him down there. They're having a conversation, kind of a comical scene to me because the captain's laying on his couch or something, like with you know, just up on his arm, going, "You saw it, didn't you?" <laughs> and then he goes, "Well, John, you probably didn't see it because you didn't have the telescope." He says, "It was the glass that showed it to me." And then the eyes of love, the eyes of love. <laughs> the captain thinks he, maybe I am crazy. Yeah, I'm good at all my captainy stuff. I'm not having problems with any of that, but. He kind of interrogates John about it. He says, you know, are bad dreams signs of madness? John says, sometimes. He says, what else? What would be the first symptoms? John says, uh, pains in the head, noises in the ears, flashes before the eyes, delusions. That kind of ticks the captain off. I wasn't having a delusion. Yeah. I'm out of here. He splits for his own cabin.
1: What did you think was going on at this point in the story?
2: I uh, lost love that was out there on the ice
1: somewhere. Oh, okay. What did you think? I thought maybe he was in love with a whale. You thought so? <laughs> I thought it was going to be kind of the anti-Moby Dick Instead of him hating that whale And wanting to kill Mm -hmm. it he was like just in love with it And he was going to Yeah If they found the whale Then he'd jump on its back And they'd just ride off together Maybe Dick Maybe Dick
2: (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't even make any sense Oh boy By Sunday the passage south has frozen up Yeah So there's nothing but a wide expanse of ice Just as they had worried what happen he talks a lot about the silence that that causes it's very spooky silence
0: no lapping of the waves now no cries of seagulls or straining of sails but one deep universal silence in which the murmurs of the seamen and the creak of their boots upon the white shining deck seem discordant and out of place a glorious sunset which made the great fields of ice look like a lake of blood I have never seen a finer and at the same time more weird effect.
2: So not seen, just being out in the middle of this uh, ice desert,
0: kinda. Yeah, of. and
1: having the deck just covered with semen.
2: Very weird. Um <laughs> So a few days later. <laughs> now man, I mean look, it's in the title. Oh. <laughs> this is the pole star. <laughs> A few days later, the captain comes into John's room, and he's acting all excited and weird. And he says, hey, it wasn't a delusion, Doc. It's all right. He's got a plan of some kind. See, he asks the doc to find out how much food they have left in their stores. Doctor goes off to make that assessment. And after accounting for all the food they have, the captain gets up and makes a speech to the whole crew. Yeah. That actually goes off pretty well.
1: They love it. He gets up there, and he says, you know, in the past, I've made you guys plenty of money. You were able to leave your wives behind, and you didn't have to worry about them becoming charity cases or anything like that. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes you lose. And this is the price we pay for doing this tough, tough job. But I've got other plans to get us out of here. And you'll be home within three weeks. So
2: things might go bad, but I've got plans for all that. Don't worry about it. Crew is super excited. The old harpooner leads off three cheers. Yep old harpooner not just a bank also dirty limericks <laughs> next day the captain is all smiles and even though he never lets anybody in his quarters he asks john to get down there and take the time by his chronometer while he measured the altitude of the sun at noon which is something that guys on boats do i assume i guess, so, I guess that's technically correct so while he's in there john can't really help himself but look around the quarters he flips through the captain's cds
1: <laughs> he's got a lot of boys to men in there which was a surprise
2: yeah huge boys to men fan looks at the paintings he's got on the walls One of the paintings on the wall surprises him.
0: There was one watercolour sketch of the head of a young lady which arrested my attention. It was evidently a portrait, and not one of those fancy types of female beauty which sailors particularly affect. No artist could have evolved from his own mind such a curious mixture of character and weakness. The languid, dreamy eyes with their drooping lashes and the broad, low brow, unruffled by thought or care, were in strong contrast with the clean-cut, prominent jaw and the resolute set of the lower lip.
2: So, finally we see an image of (laughs) Tennille. Now, the bottom of the portrait gives the girl's age as 19, and John is bowled over by how much presence she has. I mean, she's really spectacular looking. Just
1: in a painting, she's awesome. So just imagine a person.
2: Just imagine, he wonders how this lady worked into the captain's life, but of course he doesn't know.
1: Another day passes. The men are saying that there's some kind of ghost or specter around the ship at night. Yeah. And it's white and it's gruesome, calling in the darkness like a lamb that's lost its mother.
2: Yeah, I would have had this as a reading because I thought it was pretty spooky what the crewman is talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's in that overly annoying, phonetic writing.
1: Oh my God, it was so hard to
2: read. Yeah, just trying to drive home that Scottish rogue but all the ghost talk it's working on the captain even though john thinks it's bunk you know the captain thinks oh something's going on here and even has been heard muttering to himself
1: but a little time love
2: what were you at this point
1: yeah now i was like okay he lost a love but how did he lose her out here and that's what was really confusing to me it's like you wouldn't take a woman especially at this time period out on a boat so how would she be lost out at sea oh yeah i don't know so i was i was very confu- confused but also intrigued because i figured there would mm. be some kind of answer to that <laughs> you were wrong well
2: so regardless <laughs> there's some blue showing up southward between the ice flows so john is encouraged they might be able to make an exit soon despite what's going on with the crazy captain but around midnight john finally hears what the crew guys are talking about
0: i think i've already mentioned the extraordinary silence which prevails in these frozen seas In other parts of the world, be they ever so barren, there is some slight vibration of the air, some faint hum, be it from the distant haunts of men, or from the leaves of the trees, or the wings of the birds, or even the faint rustle of the grass that covers the ground. It is only here, in these arctic seas, that stark, unfathomable stillness obtrudes itself upon you in all its gruesome reality. ...you find your tympanum straining to catch some little murmur, and dwelling eagerly upon every accidental sound within the vessel. In this state, I was leaning against the bulwarks when there arose from the ice, almost directly underneath me, a cry, sharp and shrill, upon the silent air of the night, beginning as it seemed to me at a note such as prima donna never reached and mounting from that ever higher and higher, until it culminated in a long wail of agony, which might have been the last cry of a lost soul. The ghastly scream is still ringing in my ears. Grief, unutterable grief, seemed to be expressed in it, and a great longing. And yet, through it all, there was an occasional wild note of exultation. So this sound really disturbs
1: John and I mean, freaks yeah. him out. And it would freak me out, too, for crying out loud. That's, that's nutty. It
2: sounds so high, like hearing the reading that time, that it starts at a note a prima donna never reached. And then from there goes higher and higher. It's like a dog whistle.
1: But you couldn't hear it if it was a dog whistle. So maybe he couldn't hear any of it. Maybe it started off real high and it was like, Aah! and then it was just over. <laughs> but he knew it was still going on.
2: Right. Well, the next day they finally get a break in the ice pack. Yes. And they're able to turn around and and make a break for the open sea.
1: And the captain's not feeling particularly positive about anything.
2: He should be, but he's not.
1: I mean, they've got a clear passage home. It shouldn't be a problem. But he says anything can happen at any time. And even though he's never considered it before, he wants to make a will. He wants to tell the world what to do with his worldly goods and his money and all of his things in case he happens to die <laughs> right. or something might happen.
2: And it's not too much stuff. It's really just what's in his quarters. He lays out to John, you know, how he wants it all split up among the crew. He gives, I think, john a uh, present and that gets us close to the climax of the story when john writes the long impending catastrophe had come at last i hardly know what to write about the captain is gone so sometime between the will writing mm-hmm. and now the, the captain has disappeared it says it's now seven o'clock the morning the 19th of september spent the whole night traversing the great ice floe in front of us with a party of seamen in hope of coming upon some trace of him but in vain so this guy is gone gone yeah here's what happened that night after they talked about the will and after supper, the captain was being very boisterous and happy, kind of like he was in that storm that almost killed him, and going up on deck and again to look for something, to look out for something. John keeps following him, even though at one point the cap's like, go below deck, leave me alone. He
0: was staring with an eager, questioning gaze at what seemed to be a wreath of mist, blown swiftly in a line with the ship. It was a dim, nebulous body, devoid of shape, sometimes more, sometimes less apparent as the light fell on it. The moon was dimmed in its brilliancy at the moment by a canopy of thinnest cloud, like the coating of an anemone.
1: Captain says, coming last coming. And then he leaps off the ship onto the ice and he lands right next to this misty figure and he holds out his hand as in, you know, to reach for it. He runs off into the darkness in pursuit of this shape, this white ghostly apparition. And then he disappears.
2: He's running and running, and eventually they don't see him anymore. They mount a couple of search parties. They search long and hard for him, but they come up with nothing. Day passes. The crew says, look, if he jumped off the ice and he ran out there and he hasn't come back, he's dead. Yeah. We need to get going, get home, get some of that herring business going. (laughs) Uh, But John says, no, no, wait a little bit longer. I want to push. I want to do an exhaustive search. I just need to know that we did everything we could. So they get up to it. They're searching miles away from the ship. Looks like it's going to be a bust, but then they sight something. It says it took the shape of a man and eventually of the man of whom we were in search. He was lying face downwards upon a frozen bank. As we came up, some wandering puff of wind caught these tiny flakes of uh, snow that are on his jacket and they whirled up into the air partially descended again and then caught what's more in the current sped rapidly away in the direction of the sea so kind of a pewter animated like you know
1: <laughs> <laughs> right
2: yeah like kind been... of glistening glittery it says to my eyes it seemed like a snow drift but many of my companions averred that it started up in the shape of a woman stooped over the corpse and kissed it and then hurried
1: away across the flow and they bury him that afternoon i assume at sea
2: yeah they bury him at sea you know he, he didn't look like he met a painful end on his face is frozen a smile and his hands were still outstretched but they uh yeah they dump him in the water and he slowly disappears into the water oh there's some good writing here it says there he shall lie with his secret and his sorrows and his mystery all still buried in his breast until that great day when the sea shall give up its dead and nicholas craigie come out from among the ice with the smile upon his face and his stiffened arms outstretched in greeting i pray that his lot may be a happier one in that life than it has been in this oh that was
1: nice yeah it was nice and so that would be the end of the story pretty much they all get on the boat and they go away the narrator says he's not going to write anymore in his journal that, that that that's enough he does distribute the captain's things according to his will but the portrait of the woman was missing was cut out of its frame
2: and then the story does end with this note after the conclusion of the journal entries and it's by the author's father and he says hey look i know my son's truthful even though the stuff he's talking about is pretty weird but if you don't believe it Here's something I found out
0: in the way of proof. I had run down to Edinburgh to attend a meeting of the British Medical Association when I chanced to come across Dr. P, an old college chum of mine, now practising at Saltash in Devonshire. Upon my telling him of this experience of my son's, he declared to me that he was familiar with the man and proceeded, to my no small surprise, to give me a description of him which tallied remarkably well with that given in the journal, except that he depicted him as a younger man. According to his account, he had been engaged to a young lady of singular beauty residing upon the Cornish coast. During his absence at sea, his betrothed had died under circumstances of peculiar horror. And that's the end of the story. What was the horror?
1: Peculiar horror. What was that? We don't know. They don't give you nothing. That's it. Which is pretty weird, because it's not a ghost. I mean, she wasn't up in the ice flow so how -hmm. did he find her and why did that all culminate there instead of down by where she died or maybe she didn't die maybe she was kidnapped by whaling pirates
2: she was on the cornish coast he was gone at sea and then that's when she died of some peculiar horror horror,
1: so so who knows what happened to her that made her into some weird spectral banshee ghost thingy.
2: Yeah, or it's not as specific as that, you know, she's kind of everywhere. She's in the spirit world, so she can be anywhere.
1: Oh, so that's the rules.
2: He well, I don't know what the rules are, but they keep talking <laughs> about him being Faye. You know, maybe it's just uh, he's connected to her in some way mm-hmm. and, and sees the spirit world and, and is continuing to reach out for her. I don't know.
1: Yeah. What did you think of this story in all, in all?
2: I wasn't a huge fan of it to tell you the truth. Just now as we were going through the end of it though, what it reminded me of was La Belle dame sans merci, the The poem by Keats, which I have not read in a long time, but it is about a knight who dies chasing after a fairy woman, or he actually gets with her and they have a night of passion, but then he ends up dying on this hillside. Yeah, that never works out. But it had those those same elements of the pursuit Mm -hmm. and it killing you. Yeah, was this a trick? Mm. I mean, was the thing even his lost love? Was it just some cruel fairy trick that was exacted upon him? I'm not
1: sure. I don't know. It's very interesting. It's weird. It was about. Five pages too long, in my opinion. I agree. It it sort of drags in a lot of places. But there was a definite mood that was created, and I could see why Lovecraft liked it.
2: Yeah, it had some of the elements of the temple in there that they thought something was following behind the ship. The idea that they're running out of supplies and that people are getting a little crazy on board had all of those good elements of the the disastrous ship voyage but luckily only the captain that was the one that got it and he didn't drag everybody else to his death with him (laughs) seemed like that might happen at one point
1: i thought for sure that's where it was going but it didn't it was just yeah just himself that was all so you liked it i I liked it okay but it like i said it was way too long and i I think doyle's getting paid by the word wasn't he
2: well, I don't think he was getting paid at all at this point. This is pre his fame. Oh, it is. Yeah, I think so. So I probably should have read all this stuff, but I know that it's before Sherlock Holmes became a big deal. Oh. He might have already written some Sherlock Holmes stories, but uh, I, I think he was working as an ophthalmologist when this came out. Oh, uh, Yes.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. he had
2: had a medical practice beforehand mm-hmm. that didn't go very well, and yeah, so this was an earlier effort before he was the Conan Doyle that we all right. came to know of. Yeah. Oh uh, well, it was a good wintry introduction to the year. You know, yeah. uh, I'm excited about what we're going to do. We're still hashing that out. So the month of January is going to be kind of a grab bag. Yes. I looked through some emails to see just some recommendations, and a while ago when we were doing, I think Dracula's guest or some other Bram Stoker story. A listener had recommended a story by him called The Judge's House. Oh. Sounded intriguing to me, so I thought I'd throw that on the program. So next week, let's do The Judge's House by by Brom Stoker. Yeah,
1: and I want to thank John Hancock for being amazing and awesome. And it's so good to have him back on the show. We haven't had him read for us in a while, and I have missed him dearly.
2: Me too. He's great, and I'm I'm happy to have him as well. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, John. That's all we've got for this week. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And
1: I'm Chris Lackey, and you have been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft dot com.
0: Hppodcraft ah!